knows better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Last week, we finished the section in our outline entitled Deliverance. We see God delivering the nation of Egypt from the, or the Israelites from the 10th plague through the blood of the Lamb. Uh, we see Him deliver them from Egypt itself and also from Pharaoh and the Egyptian army. Uh, and we notice that after that deliverance through the Red Sea that, you know, God is leading this nation of Israel the, the long way, uh, out of Egypt. As you can see on the map, the normal way would have you know, just gone straight from Egypt along the Mediterranean Sea up to Canaan. It would have been a, a quick route, a direct route. It was the most common trade route. But God takes them south down to the wilderness, to the Red Sea. And I noted last week that this uncommon route's for a purpose, that God has a reason for going this way. Uh, we were told specifically one of the reasons was He didn't want them to go through Philistine country because they'd have war. But He also, we, we, we noted that God is doing this because He has some important lessons that He wants to teach the Israelites. On this journey, there's going to be a lot of lessons, a lot of spiritual lessons for them to learn and for us to learn as well as we see what they go through and what God teaches them. And so that brings us to the third main section of our outline of Exodus, which is journey to Mount Sinai. And you'll notice that in parentheses, I have next to all these main sections something there. And this is spiritual education, because on this journey to Mount Sinai, we're going to see them have six important things that they go through, six important things that they face. Uh, And with each one of these things, God's going to teach them a spiritual lesson. Uh, and so there's something that we can learn from each one of these things as well. Now, the Israelites' first stop really is the Red Sea. Uh, that's where they go first. That's where they stop first. And their first lesson is there at the Red Sea because you remember, you know, they're freaking out. They're blaming Moses. Why'd you bring us here? You just brought us here to die. You know, that they don't think that there's any escape because the Red Sea's at one end, the mountains are the other, the Egyptian army is in front. And now they got nowhere to go. And God teaches them a great lesson that even when they felt trapped, He is all powerful. He can deliver them from any situation. They just needed to believe in Him. They need to trust in Him. Uh, and that was the response that they gave. They finally were able to trust in Him after He did that for them. And so now we come to chapter 15. And this journey is going to continue and the lessons are going to continue. And before they move from the Red Sea, because they're going to continue south, before they leave at all, we're going to see a wonderful thing that happens in response to what God has just done. Now remember, they've just watched the Red Sea part. They've personally walked through it. And then maybe even more fantastic, they see the army that's wanting to destroy them come after them, and God closes the sea down upon Pharaoh and his army, and all those that were, you know, coming to destroy them are now dead and gone. And so we see a response to what God has just done, which brings us to our first subsection, which I've titled The Song of the Redeemed and the Wilderness of Shur. So this is what we're going to be looking at here, this response. And let's see what we can learn. Chapter 15, verse 1 says this, Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying... So now that Israel has been delivered, their response to this deliverance from God is they're going to sing a song. A song to the Lord. And this is actually really great because it's the very first song we have recorded in the Bible. Uh, So nothing's recorded in the book of Genesis of any person singing a song to the Lord, and all the way up to this point in Exodus, we haven't had any. So now our first song recorded, and it's known as the Song of Moses. 
And I think it's a fitting title to give to this song first because it seems that he is the one who wrote it. Verse 1 says, Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord. Most commentators believe that Moses is the one who actually you know, had these words from the Lord, sang, and then the children of Israel joined with him. So it would be you know, reasonable to title it the Song of Moses if he wrote it. But also we title it the Song of Moses because John, writing in Revelation... The book of Revelation chapter 15, inspired by the Holy Spirit, refers to this as the Song of Moses. Revelation 15, 2 and 3 says this, And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. Notice this. They sing the Song of Moses, the servant of God, and the Song of the Lamb. So here, John is referring back to this song that we're going to look at tonight, and he refers to it as the Song of Moses. It's kind of interesting, the setting here, they're standing before the Sea of Glass, whereas the Israelites are standing before the Red Sea. Heaven in Revelation, the Israelites here on earth, um, but both have just been delivered by God, and both are now singing because of the deliverance that they have received. And just a side note, it's interesting that both in Isaiah and also in Nehemiah, you have parts of this song as well, and both are connected with the deliverance of God. With Nehemiah, it's deliverance from the Babylonian captivity, and they sing this song, and they use a lot of the words of this song here that we're going to look at tonight. And then in Isaiah, uh, it speaks about the millennial reign, where Jesus delivers and reigns, and you get to reign with Him, uh, that this song will be sung then as well. And so this is called the Song of Moses, but he's not the only one who's singing. The whole nation's singing. And I just love the picture of that. I mean, imagine this. As we noted many times, there's several million people right now. And, you know, I've been to conferences, probably the biggest conference that I can maybe think of that I went to was about 5,000 people. And I remember being in that conference, and, you know, you start most sessions with worship. In the last session that we have, we did an a cappella Amazing Grace and it still brings chills to me when I think of it, of 5,000 people singing Amazing Grace a cappella. It was just, it was amazing to actually be a part of that. And it was just a powerful time of worship. And I just want to think like, man, what it would have been like to have millions of people singing this song to the Lord together. Uh, how amazing that must have been. And what a great preparation for us because we know that when we get to heaven, there is going to be every tribe, tongue, nation. We're all going to be worshiping Jesus. And so this is kind of a, a preparation for what's coming in heaven. Now, as we study the words of this song, we're going to see this is a great song full of wonderful truths about God. And it deals really with seven main things. Seven main things that you know Moses and the nation of Israel singing about God. And so as we go through this song, I want to just kind of point out seven things that worship songs should have in them. Um, and this is not going to be an exhaustive list of everything a worship song should have. And if a worship song didn't have one of these things, I'm not saying, oh, you can't sing it. But this is just kind of a good guideline, a good list that, hey, you know, here are things that I would be looking for in a song. Does it have these things that we see in this song? And if you're ever going to write or the Lord inspires you to write a worship song, these would be great things to include in your song. Uh, but I think the biggest thing for all of us, because not all of us are going to be writers of songs, but we all can critique. Uh, and I think it's healthy to critique worship, to look at the songs, to look at what's being written, uh, and make sure that, hey, is this connecting with what we see here? Are there things in this that truly make it worship and not just a song? Because, you know, there are plenty of good Christian songs that are out there, but they're not worship songs. They're put in the worship genre, but when you read through them, they don't really fit the worship genre because, as we're going to see tonight, they don't have a lot of really important things that they should if they're truly going to be worshiped to the Lord. And so as we look at this, I hope that this enhances you know, your ability to worship and you know, the things that you'll be looking at as you look at different songs that you sing. So the first thing that this song deals with is in verse 1. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for He is triumphant, glorious, the horse and the rider He has thrown into the sea. So notice this verse starts off with Moses, the Israelites. Notice who they're singing to. To the Lord. And then right away they spoke, saying, I will sing to 
the Lord. Back to back, we see this phrase, to the Lord. And I want us to note that, that this song is addressed to the Lord. It is not addressed to people. They are singing to the Lord. Actually, it's interesting to note, the Lord appears 12 times, that word Lord, 12 times in only 18 verses. And then when you add the uh, personal pronouns, he, him, you, and yours, you can raise that to 23 times. This is important. So the Lord is the focus of this song. It is centered on Him. J.L. Duncan wrote about this song. It's interesting that there's no mention of Moses in this song. This song is about God. Its contents are about God. Its context is about God. Its focus is on God. And its reason is founded in God. It is radically God-centered, and its thrust and goal are the honor and glory of God. As we're going to see here, this song is very God-centered. Being God-centered, I think, is one of the most important things when you're looking at, is this truly a song of worship or not? Is this just a Christian song or is this a worship song? I think this is one of the biggest things that we really should be focusing on is, you know, who's the center? Who's the focus? Who is this song all about, directed to, speaking of? Is it about the Lord? And so this is something that we really want to focus on. And we see this here, even the very beginning. They're, they're singing to the Lord. Why? For what He has done. He's triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider thrown into the sea. Speaking of the event that just happened, how He triumphed over the Egyptian army and destroyed them with the Red Sea. You know, when we worship God in song, our audience is the Lord. And sometimes you go into church and you think, man, the audience is the audience. That we're kind of singing to one another. No, no, the audience is God. He's the one that the song should be to and the song should be for. We're singing to Him, not to people. So the first important thing worship songs should have is they should be God-centered. I think too many songs that are in this genre of worship today really focus too much on us. There's so much about what we're going to do instead of what God is doing. True worship is really just a response. It's a response to who God is, and it's a response to what He's done. And so it's about who I am and what I'm going to do. I've kind of replaced the really the focus of worship. I am now the focus instead of God, because it should be all about who He is and what He's done, not about who I am and what I'm going to do for Him. Well, now we're going to see the second main thing that this song deals with, verse 2. The Lord is my strength and song, and He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. Notice here now in verse 2, this song gets very personal and very intimate. We see a word repeated over and over, and it's the word my. He's my strength. He's my song. He's my salvation. He's my God. Now, the song isn't about them. It's just connecting what they're singing about God, and it's personal now. It's not just God is generally strong. He's not just, in general, the Savior. He's not just, in general, the God. No, it is personal and intimate. He is my strength. He is my song. He is my Savior. He is my God. This is something that the Israelites have now grasped. Something that they've now held on to that, you know, he's kind of been this God competing with the Egyptian gods, but no, no, now he is mine. There's this personal relationship that's being declared in the words of their song. And the first thing that they declare is, Lord, you are my strength. You know, this is important that they finally have come to realize God is their strength personally. They just had a powerful realization of how weak they were in and of themselves. How weak and helpless they were as they came to the Red Sea. I mean, they've been weak and helpless. They could never get themselves out of Egypt. God does that for them. They come to the Red Sea and they're crying like babies. And oh no, you just brought us out here to die. And then God once again shows His strength on their behalf. He protects them. He destroys the Egyptian army with His mighty power. And they come to realize that God is the one that makes them strong. He's the one that gives them the strength that they need. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, 
Note the word is not the Lord gives me strength, but the Lord is my strength. How strong is a believer? I say it with reverence. He is as strong as God. The Lord is my strength. And I think this is something that is just so important for us to grasp. Paul came to this realization when he realized how weak he was, but because of his weakness, he was actually the strongest because he realized, in my weakness, I'm truly strong because that's when I'm depending on the strength of God. And when I'm depending on the strength of God, that's where true strength comes from because God is my strength. And when God is my strength, that's when true strength is there. You know, I love the song, You Are My Strength When I'm Weak. And this is part of the reason I like the words of that song. I like, you know, that reality of the God brings me strength. I'm not strong. He is. I'm weak. But yet He brings that strength to me because of His strength. Second, they declare, You are my song. Once again, very personal. Lord, You're the reason I sing. You're the focus. You're the purpose. You know, in heaven, Jesus will be the reason that we sing. All the songs that you see in Revelation, they're all about the Lamb, all about Jesus, all about what He's done. He's going to be the reason. It's not going to be up there and be like, man, look at how many people were martyrs. Let's worship them and sing about how they serve the Lord. And you know, It's not ever going to be about us. It's all going to be about Him. And so here on this earth, as we take time to focus on Jesus and sing to Him, we get a taste of what it's going to be like in heaven. Third day, declare, God has become my salvation. I think it's a wonderful phrase. And it's something that they have just kind of come to that realization. God has become my personal salvation. We can't save ourselves. We tried. (laughs) We could never get out of Egypt. We couldn't escape Pharaoh and his army. Nothing that we could do could save ourselves. God saved us. He became our salvation. We needed Him to personally save us because we couldn't save ourselves. And what a wonderful thing that they finally grasp and now want to express to the Lord, you are my salvation. You know, I think this is one of the things that should be the top of our list of things that we choose. There's so many things about God, so many things that He has done, but the fact that He is our salvation should be regularly on our lips when we sing to Him. You know, we just sang a song tonight, Who, O Lord, Could Save Themselves. What a great song that brings out this truth, especially the chorus. You alone can rescue. You alone can save. You alone can lift us from the grave. You came down to find us. Let us out of death. To you alone belongs the highest praise. A great song that reveals a great truth. Fourth, they declared, You are my... God. You know, this is probably the most personal, the most intimate of it all. There's been all these gods that have been worshipped before them for hundreds and hundreds of years as they're in Egypt. Egypt have all these gods. And, you know, I'm sure that many of these uh, Israelites, you know, they never got to the point where it's like, hey, the God of Israel, He's abandoned us. The God of Israel, where has He been when we've been enslaved? It's now they're finally, you are my God. I am personally making you my God. It's a choice. All these other gods that people have been worshiping for these hundreds of years, all these gods of Egypt, you know what? No. You are my God and we choose to serve and worship You. So we start here with this very personal and intimate connection. God is their strength, their song, their salvation. And this is a great example to us which brings us to the second important thing worship songs should have They should be personal and intimate. The words of our worship should not just be general. And it's not bad. I mean, this is not like, oh, if you have some song that just has some generalities about God. But you know what? Especially if you're going to write, you know, make it personal. And I think it's great even sometimes to to change even to, this is about you and me, Lord. This is a personal thing. I want to sing to you because of my relationship and the intimacy I now have and the privilege I have that you are my father and that there's that, you know, being shared in the things that we sing. The third main thing that we have in this song is in verses 3 through 10. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. 
They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who are against you. You sent forth your wrath that consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the water were gathered together. The flood stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Now we have this shift. All this personal stuff about who God is. And now look, we see here they're singing and rejoicing about the fact that God has destroyed His enemy, which fortunately for them is also their enemy. They're singing about the fact that the Lord is a man of war who fights for them. You know, this is not typically something you see in too many songs. You know, let's think about what we want to write about God. Oh, His love and His grace and His mercy and this. Hey, let's write about the fact that God's a God of war. You know, that doesn't typically come up. Actually, some people are offended by that. But I'm actually very pleased that God's a God of war. Why? Because He fights for me and He fights for you. We have enemies, many of them. The Israelites had enemies, many of them. And the fact that God fought for them and destroyed those enemies to protect them was something that gave them great reason to sing. Notice in this song, first, you know, they sing about the Egyptians. Notice what the Egyptian enemy was saying. I will pursue you. I will overtake you. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. Yeah, well, that was your plan. That's what you wanted to do. But look at the man of war. The God of war came and protected us from you, Pharaoh, and your army because you were a man of war trying to destroy us. And notice what it says. Pharaoh's chariots and his army, he cast down and drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. With a blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed them in pieces. You have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. Man, these are very descriptive words, but they're just what they just saw. Lord, look at what you've done. Look at how you protected us. Look at how you defeated our great enemy who has enslaved us for hundreds of years and you just wiped them out. You've just fought for us. You've protected us by battling our enemy. And we want to worship you for it. You know, just like the Israelites, we have a lot of enemies. Our greatest enemy is not people. We don't fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers against Satan and his demons. But you know what? There's a wonderful truth in Romans 8.31. It says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And this is something that the Israelites finally came to recognize because they were there at the Red Sea and thinking, Moses, why did you bring us out here just to die? Pharaoh is so big and strong and his army is so large and they got all these chariots and they're going to kill us. And then they realize who's really big and strong. They realize who has true power when God just parts the Red Sea and then... Crushes them all. Kills them all. And now they're just like, wow, if God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody. Because nobody's bigger than Him. No one's stronger than Him. So if He's fighting for you, then you're in a good place. Now there are people who have an issue with Jesus as the God of war, and they should because they're not following Him. They haven't accepted Him, and they're going to stand before Him as their judge, and they do not want Him to be warring against them. It's great when He's fighting for you, but it is not good when he's fighting against you. The third important thing worship songs should have in them is they should be specific about something that God has done for us. Yeah, I keep bringing back some specifics. You know, uh, I just prefer, and I think it's healthy to have more specifics in our worship and not just a bunch of generalities. Uh, and so I like the fact that here, it's like very specific to what has just transpired. And they go into detail about what God has just done to Pharaoh and his armies. And they're even talking about his nostrils blowing out stuff. And it's just very picturesque. And, and it's a wonderful picture of what the Lord has just done in 
saving and delivering them. And so, you know, I think it's good to pick something of, you know, God is fighting for us and He's delivering us and, and have some specific things that, that we are speaking of in our songs. And, and this is one of the reasons why I do love a lot of the older hymns. I'm not as big of a fan on the musical side of them, but I do really like it lyrically because I think oftentimes they go deeper and oftentimes they're more specific in details in the things that they're sharing about God. And I think that's really important and really great to have in our worship. Well, now we're going to look at the fourth main thing that this song deals with in verse 11. Who is like You, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like You, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Now the Israelites in their song are asking these great questions. Two questions that they pose. The first question is, Who is like You, O Lord, among the gods? And there's an answer that's the same to both of these song, uh, both of these questions, and the answer is no one. Who is like you, God? There isn't anybody like you. The second question is, who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? No one. And they just came to realize that very powerfully as they saw the ten plagues, as we noted, those plagues were directed towards the false gods of the Egyptians. Who's greater than you? Is it Ra, the god, the sun god? No. It's none of these gods. You defeated them. They were helpless and hopeless to try to come against these plagues that you brought. And so they have experienced this and they, they now recognize this wonderful truth. There is none like God. He's glorious in holiness. He's fearful in praises. And He does wonders like no other god can do. Israel is proclaiming the superiority of the Lord over everything else, especially everything else that claims to be God, everything else that has been worshipped as God. And I think this is a wonderful thing that we need to add to our worship and what we sing. So the fourth important thing worship songs should have is they should exalt God over everything else. I mean, this should be like a given. I mean, if there's any song where God is not the most exalted, then there's a problem there. <laughs> And there's something else that's being worshipped more than Him. We need to recognize that there's nothing as great, there's nothing as as wonderful as you. And and in all reality, I can say that there's some songs that I've read where I would say, you know, the author definitely believes that people uh, are are greater. You know, and the way in which it's written is like man is exalted to a place that God is not. And it should always be God is exalted over everything else. One of the worship songs I love is There Is None Like You. No one else can touch my heart like you do. I could search for all eternity, Lord, and find there is none like you. There's this recognition that, hey, that's true. There's none like God. He's greater than all. An important truth that we should remind ourselves with as we sing to Him. Now we're going to look at the fifth main thing the song deals with, verses 12-16. through You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength and your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone till your people Pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. These verses now bring up something that's even more important. Look at their recognition. What God has done to the Egyptians is not just something that the Egyptians now are going to be like, wow, God is so amazing. It's like, no, 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 this word's going to spread. Because we're being led to the promised land. And between Egypt and the Promised Land, there are the Moabites, and there are the Philistines, and there are the Canaanites, and there are these other groups of people that have armies and have you know problems and, and could be a struggle for the Israelites. But they have now come to recognize, not only has God destroyed the Egyptians for them, but two things have come from that. First, it's going to strike fear in every nation that hears about it. Man, when, when these guys hear about what God has done in these ten plagues, when they hear about you know, the, the destruction of all of Egypt, the greatest army in the world at that time, that God wiped them out all at once, 
Woo, that's going to strike fear. But second, it also brings confidence to the Israelites. Because they know we're going to probably go through Philistia. We're going to encounter the Edomites and the Moabites and the Canaanites. But you know what? God is going to take care of them. So this portion of the song starts with what God did to get the Egyptians and to protect the Israelites. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength and your holy habitation. And so, hey, Lord, you've been guiding us. You've been taking care of us. And then the Egyptians who tried to come against us, you just swallowed them up. You killed them. You destroyed them for us. And the song continues with what that's going to do to the nations who hear about what God has done. The people are going to hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom, man, they're going to be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your army, of your arm, they will be as still as a stone. So the Israelites understand, man, all these other armies, all these other groups of people, the ones that are between us and where we need to go, and then the ones that are actually living, the Canaanites, where we're going, they're all going to be struck with fear, with dread. What God has done is going to make them tremble, make them be full of sorrow. And then notice what they sing. Till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. You know what? This statement shows the Israelites are confident that God is able to take them through all of these places and get them to the promised land. These countries will be as still as stone until they pass them by. You know, notice what God has just done to deliver the Israelites here in the past is giving them confidence of what God will do to deliver them in the future. And this is just a wonderful thing that they recognize. Hey, Lord, because you just destroyed the Egyptian army, that gives us confidence that when we face the Philistines and we face the Canaanites and we face the Moabites, you'll take care of them. They're already afraid. They're trembling. I mean, once they hear what you did to this army, man, what's going to be you? You will let us pass by. You will give us what we need to get through these other groups as well. The fifth important thing worship songs should have is they should remind us of what God has done and give us confidence of what He'll do for us. I think these are both great things because, you know, we sing and as we sing, it's great reminders. You know, oftentimes we're singing about past events, what Jesus did on the cross or, or how God has done this or that for us. And those are great things, but they also, they kind of have a twofold thing. It's a reminder of how great God has been, but also it's pointing to, it's a declaration of, of something else, of, of, of a recognition and a confidence of what He can do for us in the future. You know, Jesus, you are worthy, I think is a great example of this. Jesus, you are mercy. Jesus, you are justice. Jesus, you are worthy. That is what you are. You died alone to save me. You rose that you should raise me. You did this all to make me a chosen child of God. Not only does this song remind us of what Jesus did, but it also just kind of points us to what He's doing and what He will do and that relationship of child-father that I have with Him and that He's worthy and that He's mercy and all these realities that continue in my life with Him. Well, now we're going to look at the sixth main thing that song deals with in verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance in the place, O Lord, which You have made for Your own dwelling. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. You know, there was a promise given to the Israelites at the start of all of this. Actually, a promise that was given to them to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and especially to Joseph as he finally is in there saying, hey, God is not only going to take us out of Egypt, which is the first part of the promise, but he's going to then bring us to the promised land. They have experienced the first part of that promise. God's removed them from Egypt. They've been delivered from that. But they are not in the promised land yet. They're in the wilderness. So the second part of that promise hasn't been fulfilled. They haven't seen it. They haven't experienced it. But yet, they believe in it. Since God has fulfilled this first promise, notice now they are confident in the fact that He is going to fulfill the promise to bring them to the promised land. You will bring them in and plant them. We're not just going to go through Canaan and then out the other end. You're going to bring us in. You're going to plant us. 
in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. You're going to take us to the place that you have for us. So they're singing about God's faithfulness, but also His promises, His fulfilled promises, and the promises that are yet to be fulfilled. The sixth important thing that worship songs should have is they should declare God's faithfulness and promises. Great is thy faithfulness. O God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not, as thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All that I've needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. A wonderful song that brings us back to this truth of the faithfulness of God. Something that we need to sing and be reminded of often. And now we're going to look at the seventh and final main thing that this song deals with, verse 18. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. What a great way, what a wonderful way to end this song. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. They're making a declaration of a very important truth. Not God will reign, but He does. And He shall continue to reign, not for a long time, but forever. And I think there's something else with this as well. It's wonderful to bring this truth about God's general reign for all eternity. But I think we're seeing with this song that they've come to a point where it's personal to them. My God, my strength, my song, you're also the one that is reigning in me. I've made you my God, and so you're not just a God who reigns generally over the earth, you're also a God who reigns personally in my own life. The seventh important thing worship songs should have is they should recognize the reign of God over our lives. And that, you know, just like the very first one, when the God, when the song is just focused on God, that He is, you know, the subject, that He is everything, you know, it kind of stems from this reality that, hey, He reigns over everything. It's all about Him. And let's not get sidetracked by putting things in, you know, the wrong places and elevating things where they don't belong over the Lord. Let the name of Jesus reign is a song I think of. Jesus, reign in our hearts, reign in our souls, you and you alone. Reign over this place with power and grace. Let your kingdom come. A great reminder of the importance of that personal reign in our life. So the song that Moses sings, that the Israelites sing with him, you know, it's a great song with seven wonderful things about God. It's God-centered. It's personal and intimate about what God means to them. It's specific about something God has done for them. It exalts God over everything else. It reminds them of what God has done. It also gives them confidence of what He can do in the future. It declares God's faithfulness and promises. And it recognizes the reign of God in their lives. So if you're writing a song, and you include these seven things, I think you're going to come out with a wonderful worship song. That if these things are a part of the song that, that you personally put down on paper, that's going to be wonderful, but also as we are critiquing songs. And it's not that, oh, these songs shouldn't be listened to. And oh, I mean, there are certain songs that maybe are just heretical, but they're just songs that are put in a genre that they don't belong in. They're written by a Christian author, and it really wasn't ever meant to be a worship song, but someone took it and said, hey, let's put this as a worship song. And it's really not. And this is a great way just to look through these things and to see, you know, is this really just a song that someone's just sharing their hearts and sharing their experiences that's really just kind of about their life? Or is this truly a song of worship where God is the focus, where it's specific about Him, where it exalts Him? You know, it's all about Him. That, that's really what it should be if it's going to be in our worship category. And I just think it's a good habit. I think I've mentioned this before about worship. I know I was challenged in a worship class that before uh, I listen to a song, because we can get sucked into the music, because some of these songs, they're written and they're put together by great musicians. They sound wonderful. And it's like, I love the sound of that song. But then we start reading the lyrics and it's like, oh, I don't really like the lyrics of the song. But man, the sound of the song is amazing. And the voices of whoever sang it are amazing. And so we like to hear it but it's not really a great song. And so my challenge to you was, was a challenge to me was before even listening, sit down and read it. 
read through the words and think, you know, is this something I really want to declare to the Lord? And if it's not, then, you know, I would say, don't put it in the worship side of it. It's not like, well, I can never listen to it. Uh, but, you know, if we're going to be worshiping with it, I think it's good to read through and see what those words say. And does it, is it something that we truly want to declare to Jesus? So Moses is leading this song, and we actually see that Miriam is leading the women in a song. And I'm actually going to note here in a moment that they probably did this together. But notice how verses 19 to 21, what we're told. For the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. So Moses is leading this song and the one that we just went through. And now we're told Miriam, which is Moses' sister, she gets a timbrel and all the women, so there could have been, we know there were 600,000 men, so probably at least 600,000 women are out there as well with their timbrels and they're dancing and they're singing this. And notice it says Miriam answers them. And in the culture of that time, and if you go to the Middle East now, oftentimes you'll have kind of, you know, one group singing something and another group will kind of answer back in this kind of back and forth. And so, you know, most commentators believe that this song probably went with the men singing one of these verses and the women coming back with, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and its rider thrown into the sea. And then the men come with the next verse and the women come back with this chorus and it's just kind of back and forth as the women are dancing and playing their, you know, basically it's like a tambourine and, uh, and this kind of song going and people are excited and they're just worshiping the Lord. So now God has done this amazing thing. He parts the Red Sea to let them escape their enemy. He brings the Red Sea back down on their enemy, destroys their enemy. They respond in this beautiful song of worship. But I want you to notice the final verse we're going to look at tonight. Verse 22. Things are great. Whew. We thought things were bad. We thought we were all going to die here in the wilderness. And look what God does. Let's, let's worship Him. Verse 22. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea and then went into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. So now let's remember something here. God has led them to the Red Sea to begin with. They weren't happy about that. You know, this is the long way. You brought us to this place where we're trapped. What's going on? I got a lesson for you. I want to teach you something. You brought us out here to kill us. No, I actually came out here to kill your enemies. And now, look, I protected you. Oh, Lord, you're so great. You're wonderful. They sing this great song. As you can see from our map here, this is probably right around where the wilderness of Shur would be. But God's taking them now deeper into the wilderness. They've left the sea. They're going, and we're told something important here, that they've traveled for three days. And notice what they can't find. Water. Now, when you're in the wilderness especially, your body can only go about three days without water. So they are literally in a place where they are dying of thirst. We use that term like, man, I just ran, you know, 10 steps and I'm dying of thirst. But, you know, we're not really dying of thirst. They were dying of thirst. They go another day and they're done. And so now they're in a pretty bad place. And there's two things I want us to note about this. First is the fact that God has just powerfully delivered them powerfully redeemed them from a horrible situation there at the Red Sea where they thought they were all going to die. Now they're full of songs. They're full of worship. They're full of de declaration of who God was and what He's done for them. Now I'm sure that after this great deliverance, there's probably many of them thinking, whew, now things are going to get good. I mean, we've been enslaved for so long, but now Pharaoh's gone and the army's gone and you know our lives are finally going to be nice. It's finally going to be good. Everything's going to now work out. This is the turning point where things go from bad to great and we just can't wait for what's in store. But notice the first thing that happens after their deliverance. First thing that takes place is they can't get any water that they desperately need and they're all in a place where they're very scared, most likely, because they're going to die of thirst. 
And I think there's another important lesson. Remember, God is bringing them on this journey to teach them important truths. You know, there are many people who believe and teach that once someone gets saved, once God redeems them, now their life is just going to be a bed of roses. Everything's going to work out. There's not going to be any more problems. You're not going to have any more health issues. You're not going to have any more financial issues. Everything's just going to be great, and there's not going to be any more difficulty in your life. Sadly, a lot of people are teaching this as a pretense to accepting the Gospel. Well, if you accept Jesus, everything's going to be great. You're not going to have any more problems. Your life's going to be so wonderful. You won't have any more issues. You're always going to be healthy and wealthy. And, and just believe in Jesus. Accept Him. And watch what happens. But you know what? That's not true. We know that from experience, but we also know that from the Bible. The Bible doesn't teach that. Accepting Jesus doesn't turn your life into a bed of roses. It doesn't take away hardships. It doesn't take away difficulties. It doesn't take away trials. Actually, sometimes it brings even more into our life. But the big difference is, before Jesus, we had to deal with it on our own, in our own strength, in our own power, try to deal with these things, which was pretty difficult. But now that we have Christ, we have the power of the Holy Spirit. It's no longer our strength and power. God can get us through, just like they've experienced. Man, God is my strength. When God's on my side and He's fighting my battles for me, I can handle anything because He can handle anything. So it's definitely a huge difference, but it's not that I don't experience it. Notice God took them through the Red Sea. He didn't just say, oh, we'll just, you know, poof, put you out. You don't have any problems anymore. No, He walks us through these problems. He's with us through these problems, but it doesn't rid us of problems because we accept Him. So the first thing I want to note about this is there's no bed of roses after redemption. That's why I put it in parentheses in our outline to remind us of this connection. And it's important. Hey, God does these things, but it's not like, oh, right after that, well, everything's just going to work out and be perfect and there's not going to be any more issues. No. But the second thing I want to take note of, especially connecting with worship, is notice the time of the song. Notice when Israel chooses to sing. And before we note when they choose to sing, let's note when they sang last. They haven't sung yet. <laughs> all throughout their slavery, all through these problems, we don't see them singing. When they get to the, you know, they've been delivered. They're finally walking out of Egypt. They're not singing. God's taken them to the, to the Red Sea. Why'd you do this? Weren't there enough... Graves in Egypt? Why did you bring us out here to die? They're not singing. They're still complaining. It's now only after this amazing deliverance where they watch their enemies be defeated that they finally come to the place where they're willing to sing a song of worship to the Lord. Now, I'm going to say this. It's good to sing to the Lord when He has delivered you. When God does great things in your life, this is a great time to respond with, Lord, I am so thankful for who you are, for what you've done, and I want to specifically sing and praise you and thank you for how you have intervened and rescued me or whatever it's been. That's great. That should be. That's kind of natural. Like, yeah, now I got so much reason to say thank you, so much reason to worship you. But that shouldn't be the only time. And I think that's the sad reality of worship for many people is this mindset of, you know what, I just don't feel like it. I'm going through all this junk and life's not good. And man, if God would just deliver me, then I'd worship Him. If God would do something great for me, then I'd worship Him. If God would rescue me from this situation and not allow me to have to go through it, well, then I'd sing songs to Him. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, Sing in fine weather. Any bird can do that. Praising God when all goes well is commonplace work. Everybody marks the nightingale above all other birds because she sings when no other minstrels of the words are silent and asleep. Songs in the day are from man, but God Himself giveth songs in the night. O come, let us sing unto the Lord under the clouds. Let us pour forth His praise in the fires. Let us praise Him under depressions. Let us magnify Him when our heart is heavy. Faith believes in God where there is nothing to support her but the bare promise. Worship shouldn't just be about how I feel. If I feel good, I'm going to praise God. If I feel bad, I'm not. Because that removes the fact that God is worthy whether I am going through good things or bad things. God is worthy no matter what. And God is worthy for all that He already has done, whether He does anything more 
is irrelevant. I can praise Him for all eternity for what He's done. And I will praise Him for all eternity for what He's done. And so to think, well, Lord, yeah, You died for my sins. That's nice. But what have You done for me lately to cause me to worship You because I haven't seen anything this last week? That kind of mindset just totally shows we really don't understand the God that we are supposedly singing to and worshiping. I think a great example of being willing to worship in a time when maybe most of us wouldn't. The book of Acts, chapter 16, verses 22 through 25. Then the multitudes rose up together against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them in prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, before we get to this final verse, remember, Paul and Silas are preaching the gospel. That's the only reason that they're in prison. They've been beaten. They've been in prison. And they're not just in prison. They're in inner prison, and their feet are in stocks, which would be super uncomfortable. So picture this. All I've done is be faithful to the Lord. All I've done is proclaim the gospel. And because of it, I have been beaten. I've been in prison. I've been placed in stocks. I'm hurting. I'm bleeding. I'm bruised. I probably have broken bones. And notice verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And this is one of those things where it's like, it's nice to be able to say, we should praise God no matter what. We should praise God whatever circumstance we're in. But if I'm honest, I don't know if I, if I was in this situation, I just was beaten and imprisoned and put in stocks, that I'd be sitting there and be like, all right, let's sing a worship song, Silas. You know, let, let's worship the Lord here. I mean, uh, I could complain to God. I could be like, why did you do this? Why did you allow this? I'm unfaithful to you, Lord. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of things that might come out of my mouth or, or be in my mind that worship might not be there. And I love the fact that we see this example from Paul and Silas, that they understood, you know, worship's not about how they feel. It's not about their circumstance. It's about the fact that God is worthy no matter what. And I love the fact that all the prisoners were listening to them. Probably a sound they never heard before. I'm sure they heard the screams and the swearing and all the bad things that come out. But man, worship songs? Who sings worship in prison after this? The song that Israel sang at the Red Sea, it was a great song. But unfortunately, it doesn't last. And this is part of the problem that Israel has. How they treat God, what they say about God, is so circumstantial. Oh, you've just delivered us. You are Savior. You just delivered us. We worship you. You just delivered us. You're so wonderful. Oh, we don't have any food. We don't have any water. And then they just whine and complain. And if their circumstance is great, God, you're great. And if their circumstance is bad, God, you're bad. If my circumstances are great, God, you are worthy of my worship and I'll sing songs to you. But if my circumstances are bad, you are no longer worthy. I will not sing until you change my circumstances. And sadly, that is the pattern that we see with the nation of Israel where they're only singing and worshiping when their circumstances are good. But when those circumstances change, so does their heart of worship. But that's not what God wants. That's not how we should be. And I know it's hard. I know it's easier said than done. I know that we're emotional people. I know that we're connected to our circumstance. I know it can be hard. But this is where we got to come back to recognize who God is, His worth, that it's not based on what we're going through. It's based on who He is, what He has done, what He continues to do, what He will do. And to realize, if you're thinking, well, Lord, I thought you promised me an easy life. No, we didn't. I thought you promised me that everything would be great. No. He promised to save you from your sins. He promised to always be there with you. He promised you eternity in heaven. But He didn't say that there would be no problems here. So we see a great song of worship. We see a great response of worship. Unfortunately, it's not one that's going to last, but hopefully for us, it can. So any thoughts on 